Scripture today is from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Lord God, thank you for your word. Bless it to our hearts, Lord God, as we understand it. May we put what we learn into practice. Renew our hearts, renew our minds. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we are now firmly in the Advent Christmas season. And even Scrooges like me have to accept that people are going to be putting up their trees, decorating their houses, um, sending out Christmas cards, and blasting Jingle Bell Rock from dawn to dusk. You know, when I look around, you know, you kind of see two Christmases, right? One secular and one sacred. The secular one has all kinds of weird stuff from all these different cultures, all jammed into one thing. Like, you know, Santa Claus is who I think is probably just an obese version of the Flash from the Justice League. You know, he goes all around the world in one night, you know, um, you know, giving out gifts and eating cookies and stuff like that. Um, you have, uh, we, we, take, we take a tree from outside, cut it down, a living tree from outside, cut it down, bring it inside to watch it die. Um, we decorate it with things that will kill our animals if they eat it. Um, and then we have the sacred Christmas. You know, obviously we're in church. We're going to talk about the sacred Christmas, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. You know, a big question that comes up during this time was Jesus born on December 25th. And a lot of people want to point out, they want to seem like they're such smarty pants. And um, I mean, it doesn't matter because we're commemorating the birth of Christ as if you never had a birthday that was not on exactly on the day um, that you were having a birthday on. So what are we celebrating? We know the trappings of this time, we see it on cards and decorations. The baby in Elizabeth's womb, John, who jumps when he first encounters the Christ child. You ever think about that? John is inside his mother's womb, Elizabeth's womb, when he encounters Christ and he jumps for joy. Be praying for the Supreme Court this week. They are deciding on a very important case that may overturn the abortion laws in this country. It's something we need to be praying about. The Bible, the Bible absolutely recognizes the personhood of the fetus, of the child in the womb. In the womb. John, so we know of the, the baby jumping in Elizabeth's womb when she comes over, when she meets with her cousin Mary. We, we, know, of the, um, we know of a scared Mary, but a faithful woman bearing the Son of God, even though she was a virgin. The shepherds keeping their flock, the wise men traveling afar, the inn, the manger. But can you tell the story of Christmas without all of these? In Matthew and Luke, we find all of these events and all of these people. In Mark, he skips right over the Christmas story and going straight into John the Baptist preparing the way. But in the Gospel of John starts also before and after the Christmas story. It's the cosmic story of Christmas, the supernatural story of Christmas. It's focused solely on the incarnation, God becoming man. 
In this series on the cosmic context of Christmas, we'll be looking at three passages that focus on this greater, wider picture of what is happening, what happened during in the manger that day. This is the origin of Christmas. Tracking the origin of different celebrations that we have here in America can be a daunting task, some from Germany, some from England, so on and so forth. But we know the origin of Christmas, or do, or do we? If we go back to look at the true origin of Christmas story, you have to go further back than the modern celebration. You have to go further back than what we read about in Luke and Matthew. Further back than the intertestamental period I spoke of last week. Further back than the exile, even though during the exile there was such a a deep need for a redeemer who would give freedom to the captives. You have to go further back than the exile. You have to go further back even than the time of kings, of Solomon and his wisdom, uh, further back than the man after God's very own heart, David, who said if there was one thing he'd ask for the Lord, the one thing, you know, we have our Christmas gifts. Okay, I really want this. I really want that. The one thing David put on his list is that he would dwell with the Lord forever and he would get his wish further back than a people who are wandering in the desert, further back than the judges who performed mighty deeds and redeemed a people who were enslaved, but only for a short period of time. Further back than the wandering in the desert with a, with a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. Further back than a people who are enslaved by the very people their forefathers saved, crying out for a deliverer, crying out for a redeemer. Further back than a family whose father was told to lead comfort and familiarity because there was a city whose author and founder was the Lord. Further back than a worldwide flood. Further back than a tower. Further back than a man named Job in the land of Oz who experienced such suffering, but he said, my Redeemer lives. Further back than when our first father and first mother ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God told the serpent who deceived the woman that there would be a seed of the woman, and he would grow, and the serpent would strike his heel, but he would crush, but the man would crush his head. Further back now, the two all the way to the beginning and even before the beginning, to Genesis 1, 1, 1, in the beginning, God. And that is where John's gospel starts. All the way in the beginning, there is two creation accounts in the scriptures. One, Genesis 1, 1. The second one, John 1, 1. In John's gospel, he gets to the very origin of the incarnate Christ. You cannot explain the Christmas story without John 1, 1. If all you talk is about a baby, a manger, wise men, shepherd, you've missed it because the point of Christmas is in verse 14, which I'll get to at the very end of my sermon, the word became flesh. It's Isaiah summar- it's summarizing Isaiah saying that of the prophecy of the Christ, that he'll be called Emmanuel, God with us. The Gospel of John is different from Matthew and, and Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke follow a very chronological narrative story, while John is like, let me just start off by telling you what this is about. It's kind of the difference between reading um, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien has this big epic of wars and orgs and Sauron and dark lords and all of that. There's some symbolism in there that he's all coy about. And then you get to C.S. Lewis and he's like, see this lion? It's Jesus Christ. John, he starts off his gospel, his account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ by saying, in the beginning was the word. In Shakespeare's Macbeth, there's this line, life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. The incarnation, incarnation, especially John's use of the Greek word logos, which is translated as word, stands in sharp contrast to Macbeth. God doesn't start everything and say, see you later. Instead, the word of God, the logic of God dwells with us. The word has been made flesh and dwells with us. All of the scripture, all of life can be summarized in Isaiah's prophecy of the Christ. He shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. 
You can't explain the Christmas story adequately without John chapter 1. Christmas isn't just about a baby born to a virgin, though that is essential, and don't let anybody tell you differently. In fact, there was a very famous preacher who said if we lost a virgin birth, we wouldn't lose much. We lose everything. All of Scripture is God-breathed. If you can't trust one part of it, you can't trust any of it. If you can't trust John 1.1, you can't trust John 3.16. If you can't trust that there's a virgin birth, birth, you can't trust the others. It isn't just about a shepherd and wise men. It isn't just about a star in the east and a manger in Bethlehem. It's much bigger and wider. It's much more cosmic, much more supernatural than all of these things. And in John chapter 1, in this very first chapter, we see what Jesus is. He is more than a, he's more than a good man with good advice. He was, not, he was actually never a victim. He was never just somebody done in by a bad circumstance. No, he is the word, he is light, and he is life. And that's what I want to talk to you today in our scripture today, that, the wor- that Jesus Christ is the word, the life, and the light. Once again, we are kind of pulling out past Bethlehem to the very cosmic story of Christmas. Verses 1 through 4 starts with, in the beginning. John starts off his account, account with the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, the way the writer of Genesis starts off his account in the beginning. In John's account, it is the Word who is in the beginning, because of course, there is no, there is no contradiction, of course, because the Word is God. In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. In, in John 1.1, in the beginning, the Word. And the word for word here is logos. So um, I've, you probably can tell, because I, without looking at my notes, I've, I've said John um, 1 through 4 um, pretty regularly here. Um, it's one of the one of the very few, one of the very first verses I memorized. It's one of the ones that stays with me all this time. There's that one point in time where I literally memorized the book of Luke and could recite it verse by verse, word by word perfectly. I can't do that anymore. It's just how memorization works. But there are some things that always stay with me. John 1, 1 is one of those things in the beginning. In the the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He's with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made and I can go on. I've been trying to memorize it in the Greek, um, which is um, somewhat of a difficult uh, task to do, especially in a week where I've been sick. Um, but I did write it down in Greek. Um, I don't have any transliteration here. And we'll see how well I do just reading from the Greek. In arche en o logos. <clears throat> I remember this word right here. Um, as um, o logos im in, oh, fun. I, I can't remember all of a sudden. <laughs> Wonderful. Oh, that was going to be awesome, too. In arche, in es logos, which is the very first line, in the beginning was the word. This might be fun for you to know, though. Um, so in John 1, 1, in the, in the Greek, um, right before the word is ohologos, and the word for o, and it is pronounced o-h, aho, um, or actually, it's, it's like H-O, ho, like ho, 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 Santa Claus. Um, ho, ho, logos. Um, that it's just one letter. It looks like an O, but it's not O. It's Omicron. So we know about Omicron. My brother uh, texted me this last week. He says they're calling the new they're calling the new variant of COVID Omicron. And he's like, are they naming it now after Transformers? <clears throat> Which made me laugh. He's like, are they going to call the new uh, the new booster shot Optimus Prime? Um, they, they call it Omicron because it is the Greek letter O. O also is the word the, the definite article, meaning not a word, not an word, but the word. A logos is the word for word right there. So you have a kind of a fun um, way of, uh, of uh, you have a fun way of evangelizing during this Christmas season as people are talking about Omicron and Christmas. You can be, let me tell you about Omicron Logos. Oh, logos. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. And you can go to the gospel account from John 1, 1 and talk about um, the word. That Omicron also means the, and it precedes word. The word here for word, once again, is logos. It doesn't simply mean a series of characters in an alphabet that make up an idea. There is a twofold purpose to John using logos here. It would mean 
it would mean fantastic things to both Jews and Greeks. For the Greeks, it was a concept more than just a word. Um, from logos, we get the word logic. So the Greek idea of, of logos was the logic behind the universe. We talk a lot about intelligent design, that there is a design to the universe, therefore there must be a designer. And this concept is already back with the ancient Greeks with the idea of logos. They didn't attribute this to their gods because it was too great for their gods. Zeus couldn't be the logos. He was too low. It was such a high and lofty term. So John writes in his, in his gospel, and John, John's gospel would have been so scandalous to a Greek ear. Because you didn't just say these words. These were important words. Words like agape. They didn't use that for God. They used that for concepts like justice. But he says, for God so agape the world. And he begins his, he begins his, uh, his letter with, with, with an um, arche es o logos. Arche means where we come from, the English word um, archaeology, the study of, of first things. So in the beginning was the word. It's like, where's he going with this? The, the intelligence idea behind the universe. But to the Hebrew ear, they're hearing in the beginning was the word. And their concept for the word of God was so established throughout all of the Old Testament that the word of God would come and that the word of God was eternal. Isaiah 80, verse 8. The grass withers and the flowers, and the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. Psalm 119, 89. Your word... Lord, is eternal. It stands in firm in the heaven. God so identifies with what he says that John uses the word logos to express the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, Jesus Christ. This is why John 1.1 is the most relevant Christmas passage you should read this Christmas season or any Christmas season. We start talking about Christmas, the true meaning of Christmas. Before we get to the manger, let's talk about eternity past. In the beginning, so in the beginning, so before anything was, there was God, but there was the Word, Jesus Christ, the Logos, the, the logic of God. It's, it's so amazing, too, when you look at this, because we really don't have, we think we have, we think we have an example in human life, because we talk about you being as good as your Word, and you can trust somebody's Word, but could you ever really trust somebody's Word? It's nice to trust somebody's word when you have a contract, so if they break their word, you can take them to court. God is so, is so tied to his word that John 1.1, he uses logos, word, logic, to express the person, the second person of the Trinity. In John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In this, he expresses certain attributes of Jesus Christ that only apply to God. First, one reveals his pre-existence. He was already in the beginning. Both Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses do not believe this about Jesus Christ. Neither do Muslims. Jehovah Witnesses believe that, that Jesus was a, a brother to Lucifer. And Mormons believe that Jesus was created by a God who was then created by another God. But we have what the testimony of Scripture, that in the beginning, before anything was, he already is. And if you remember the name of God in the Old Testament, the proper name of God in the Old Testament is He is Yahweh. Yahweh, God is, period. What is the answer to life? He is. He is. The word translates as, the, the word that we have translated here as with, He was with God in the beginning, is pros. It's where we get the, it's where we get the, um, the compound pro, what it literally means, um, other than with, it means to be so close with one another, face to face. I'm not going to make an example of this today. I've been feeling under the weather today, so I don't want to get anybody sick. Why I'm not going to shake hands. Um, but it means to be face to face. If we talk about somebody being pro-science, pro-dog, pro-cat, we understand that. The word was pro-God. He was with God in the beginning, pros. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had, pros you, with you, before the world existed. He is coexistent with God. The word was God. 
the Trinity can be difficult, a difficult thing to understand, but John gives us this essential truth. Jesus is God. The Word was God in the beginning. He is also separate from God the Father in separate in person, not in essence. They are same essence. They are God. Jesus is in part of God. He is God. God the Father is in part of God. He is God. God the Holy Spirit is in part of God. He is God. And the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. And neither are the Holy Spirit. It is quite the mystery. There is a saint of old who was trying to figure this out, thought how he could explain this just perfectly, and he fell asleep, and God gave him this vision of this ocean. And this little boy had this little strainer, and he was going to the ocean. He would pick up a thing of water, and then he'd run to this hole he made into the sand, trying to pour the water into the hole. Now, obviously, nothing was getting in there. So this man, he asked the boy, he's like, what are you doing? And he tells him, I'm going to empty the ocean into this hole before you're going to understand God fully. So it's a bit difficult to understand, but we see essential truths here that cannot be violated because we're talking about the essence of who God is and who Christ is. I'll talk about this more next week, but there's a very popular idea that's actually heresy, and it affects the very personhood of Jesus Christ. But there's never a point in Christ's life where he is less than 100% God. He is fully God, fully man. He is coexistent. He, the word was God. The Trinity became d- difficult to understand, but John gives us this intre- essential truth. Jesus is God. The word was God in the beginning. Also is self-existence. The word also exists independently from God the Father. He was not granted life, but in him was life. And this is different from everything else, right? Everything was granted life to it. That God breathed on Adam, he became a living soul. He made the, he made the creatures that crawl upon the land, the creatures that fly, the fly in the skies. But Christ in him was already life. He is self-existence. This means the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father, but both are persons of the Godhead. Through Christ, all things have been made. He is self-existing. What existed before Christ? Nothing. Here before Christ, no such thing. Nothing has existed without him, and he, for his sake, all things are created. So how does this then inform the way we live? I've given you so much theology and everything, not just to bless you and encourage you today, but how does this affect how we live? That Jesus Christ is the logic and word of God. I would say it affects us in every way. Every year, we are bombarded with truth claims, people who try to be things that try to be logos adjacent. But Christ is not a word, which would be an indefinite article. He is omicron logos. He is ho logos. He is the word. So what can the stars tell you about who you are? Nothing. Christ can tell you about who you are. What can a personality test tell you about who you are? Nothing. Christ can tell you about who you are. What can tell me about great spiritual truth, some guru, some swami, some other religion? No, only Christ can tell you about every spiritual truth. All the others are counterfeits and liars. They are thieves who try to enter into the sheep and by not using the sheep gate, but the sheep hear his voice. Simply put, it doesn't matter what I think or what you think or what anybody else thinks. It matters what the word has said. Where is life found? That is the great question. Where There are many answers, but there's only one, one right one. It is found in Christ and in Christ alone. In Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. It says, in the, in the former days, God spoke to our forefathers through prophets in many times in various ways. But in these final days, he has spoken through his son. For his son is the Logos, the only word. He is also the light. Verses 5 through 9. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I remember my, uh, my apartment. I had moved to Becca's hometown after college, and Becca moved away. I didn't take the hint. We eventually got married. But anyway, um, my, my apartment in her hometown was above a salon, and I didn't get to—there I didn't get to. There was no thermostat in my unit, so the building had its own heating, and then I had supplemental heating. This factors into my story because my room was in an interior room. There was no windows. 
So it would get cold at night, especially during the winter. So I'd turn on the supplemental heating and I'd forget about it. Until around three o'clock in the morning, it'd be about 120 degrees in my room. I'd wake up in a panic because I do not like being warm when I sleep. And it was utter darkness. And it was hot. It was like hell. <laughs> it's like the Bible describes hell as utter darkness and that it's a lake of fire. I get it. Um, and I don't want to go there. Thank you, Jesus. And I'm like frantically searching in my room. And this is in the, this is in the like dark ages when like our phones weren't our source for like entertainment and our alarm clock. I just had the flip phone. I think Bruce Tierhart still has a flip phone, which is pretty cool. And I, so I didn't have it. I didn't have, I didn't have a flashlight, you know? So I'm just, I'm just in the dark reaching for something, a light. Maybe I could find the, the third, the, the, the heater. And I remember just, just being in such a panic and what a glorious thing when I finally opened the door, turned on the light, that there was a light in the darkness. The light shines in the darkness. Isaiah 8 and 9 warns about times when people will tell us to inquire of spiritual counterfeits, specifically mediums and spiritualists, those who talk to the dead. It's amazing to me how clear the Bible is about don't talk to the dead. And still some people are like, well, maybe we should though. I mean, you have people who say that like God gives them vision of dead people talking to them and stuff like that. Don't do that. Saul did that. It didn't go well for him. So Isaiah 8 and 9 specifically talking about it, but it says anybody who does not have this word does not have the light of dawn. They depressed and hungry, they, they wander the land and they look towards earth with only gloom and shame and, and curse their God and King. Every year, like I said before, there are so many spiritual counterfeits, thieves who try to enter in through the, not using the sheep door. And Christ is life and that life is our light. The light shines in the darkness. Should we follow gurus, personality tests? No, look, no, we should look to the stars. No, we should, um, we, we should find out these spiritual things by these spiritual people to know about ourselves. No, only in Christ do we find true light in the darkness. All others are counterfeit, promising light, but lead us in utter darkness. There is a uh, French intellectual named Emile Clamet. He wrote, his, he wrote about an autobiography in a magazine. He was born in France on December 17th, so two days away from the best day to be born, the 15th. That's my birthday. Um, 1894, a bit older than me. He served in the French armed forces in World War I and distinguished himself with many degrees from universities of Montpellier, and Strasbourg. After coming to America, he served as professor of French literature at the University of Pennsylvania and uh, Clement Graduate School in California and Wesley University in Connecticut. Emile, he was, he was raised as a, as a French humanist. So like religion, just not allowed in the house. And she kind of grew up with a disdain, a hatred, especially for the biblical religion and it was in his time in World War I, right before World War I um, happened, it was Christmas Day before World War I happened, that he met his wife, married his wife, who was a devout evangelical, who it must have pained her greatly because he made it very clear in his house, there would be no religion. No Jesus, no Bible, nothing. So Emil, he, he faced certain things in World War I that he couldn't account for. He was badly wounded. He held his best friend dying in his arms, his friend calling for his own mother. How do, how do you deal with these things? So he said, I know what I'll do. I'll create a book, and I'm going to call it the book that understands me. So in his research for his different doctorates, he would, he would um, highlight certain things, and he would put it into the book, the book that understands me. And he made it page by page, page by page. Finally, one day, one sunny day, he thought, I'm going to sit under this tree, and I'm going to read the book that understands me. As he starts reading it, he realizes how empty and fruitless it is because truly it just came from him. And he became just so depressed, so suicidally depressed, he didn't know what he was going to do with his life. As he's walking home, he sees his wife at the gate with their child and um, he sees a Bible in her hand and she thinks he's angry. She explains to him that they were going, it was a very hot, sunny day, 
Yeah, I, I can just feel that right now. That'd be nice. But anyway, it was a hot, sunny day, and they were going to the market, and the carriage they were on was so bumpy that they got out of there, and they went to this area that was, that was nice and shaded in. It was a church. And the pastor there said, do you have a Bible in French? And she's like, no, and she just wanted to be polite, so she took the Bible, and that's how she got this Bible. Let me read to you what Emile wrote in that magazine article. I literally grabbed the book and rushed to my study with it. I opened it and chanced upon the Beatitudes from Matthew chapter 6. I read and read. I could not find words to express my awe and wonder. And suddenly the realization dawned upon me, this book that would under, this is the book that would understand me. I needed it so much, yet unaware I had attempted to write my own in vain. I continued to read deeply into the night, mostly from the Gospels. A decisive insight flashed through my whole being the following morning as I probed the opening chapters of the Gospel according to John. The very clue to the secret of human life was disclosed right here. Not, just, not stated in foreboding language of philosophy, but in the common everyday language of human circumstances. For the darkness, for the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Last week, I talked about the menorah of Hanukkah. I think Hanukkah is finished tomorrow. The great miracle of Hanukkah, why do you still celebrate Hanukkah to this day, is because after a great battle, after they had won their freedom, there was only one jar not desiccated. It was only enough for one day, but that one jar lasted eight days. That's the great miracle. And so, you know, today we'll say, people will want to say happy holidays because you don't want to offend people who celebrate other holidays. Why? Tell me about the menorah. Tell me about the miracle of the lights because I am desperate to tell you about a light that shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Not for eight days, not for 2,000 years, but all of human history because he is the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. He is the great light. A little candle on a stand can illuminate a large room. It's easy to understand this in the natural but in the supernatural, we have a hard time with this. There's a saying, and I like the saying, never doubt in the dark what God has shown you in the light. But I was re-examining this week in the light of John 1 through 14. And after looking at this, my response is this, though, is what dark? It should probably go more like this. If it feels like you are walking in the dark, open your eyes, for a light has dawned. So much of our life, as believers, isn't so much about learning, though we should strive to do that every single day. But truly, it's remembering. Remembering as we get bombarded by darkness from all, all angles. I did on purposely. I mean, I, I've been trying not to talk about COVID for like ever now because I don't care anymore. Um, I'm sure a lot of people do. But I decided on purpose to talk about Omicron because here's this new fear. Everybody be afraid, be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. A light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I don't care if it's the resurgence of the Black Plague. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Are you going through a time that feels dark right now? Open your eyes. A light has dawned. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. The great lie of Satan is that you're in darkness when all you need to do is open your eyes. In verses 6 through 8, we have John the Baptist. Verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Verses 6 through 8 mentions the life and ministry of John, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. I've spoken at length about him in the past, so I will not retread all of that. I just want to point out one thing, is that John was, that Jesus said that John went out in the spirit and power of Elijah. According to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't lie, and Jesus is always right, John is the greatest born from women. So John is the greatest, is the greatest prophet from the Old Testament. I say from the Old Covenant because... Jesus says the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. 
What made John so great? John doesn't do any miracles. Isn't that interesting to know? Jesus says he's the greatest born of woman. Jesus says he went out in the spirit and power of Elijah, but no like Shazam fire from heaven happens in John's time. It's because what makes a prophet great is not miracles, it's what they prophesy about. What makes a prophet great is not miracles, it's what they prophesy about. God will work miracles even through unbelievers, but it's what they prophesy about that's important. What makes John so great is that he prophesied, he made way for the greatest thing in all of the cosmos and beyond the cosmos, Jesus Christ. The performing of miracles is not what makes a prophet great, it's what they prophesy about. The rise and fall of empires is amazing, but nothing compared to John's task. Fire from heaven is outstanding, but pale in comparison to John's mission. John testified to the light. Those of you who went through my Revelation class probably know where I'm going from here. There's this part, John the Beloved, the one who wrote the gospel. He has his revelation in the book of Revelation. And there's twice, actually, but one of these times, he bows down to the angel, and the angel tells him to get up. The angel is abhorred to the idea that somebody would worship him. That's one of the reasons why we know Jesus is God. Jesus accepted worship. And he tells him that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. There's so many prophecies going around. I just read one on Instagram today. Here, you want to know how to test prophecies? Are they the testimony of Jesus Christ? Do they make me love Jesus more or do they fill me with fear, anxiety, and worry? It's not the spirit of prophecy that they are speaking from then. For the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's how in, in Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, it can say in the former days, God spoke to the prophets in many times in various ways, but in these final days, God has spoken through his son. All of it should accumulate into praise and glory and affection to Jesus Christ. Finally, in verses 9 through 14, he is the life. Four words. I had a professor in college who was known for this saying. He says that uh, there'll be two words that change your life, and this is absolutely true, which is God and try. Here are four words that not only will change your life, change the world, the cosmos. Angels look to, long to look into this very thing. It's the four words at the very beginning of verse 14. The word became flesh. We'll be singing at the end of this today, the song, Hark the Herald, includes this line, veiled in flesh the Godhead sees, hailed incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. You know, one of the great things about Christmas, and people shouldn't knock it, is Christmas carols, because Christmas carols include enough theology to get somebody saved. Many of the songs we sing today don't, you kind of have to be in the club to understand them, even. You look at, if you just read the lyrics to a lot of these carols, there's enough there to get somebody saved. Four words that will change everything is the word became flesh. But before I get there, let's go back to verse 10. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Christ lived in the world. He was he made the world, but the world did not know him. We often talk about the word Christian means Christ-like. Two of the three apply to us. The one that doesn't apply to us is that we did not make the world, but we are in the world, but the world should not know us. There's a problem when people who pretend to be great men of God are admired by this world because Jesus said this world would hate you. Does the world know you? Does the world, here's a better question, does the world own you? If the world doesn't own you, it will hate you. It couldn't own Christ. He was the creator. And what do we see at the cross? We see representations of all humanity crucifying the Lord of life. Let me explain what I mean by that. So, so the Jews, their chief priest was there at the cross condemning Christ. The chief priest is a representation of the Jewish people. He would put his hands upon the sheep to transfer the guilt of the Jewish people to the sheep, and then the sheep would be sacrificed. And there he's, he's at the crucifixion. He didn't put his hands on Christ. He actually had somebody else put his hands on Christ, but that's another story. And he is approving to the crucifixion. Pilate, 
the governor of Judea, by the power of Herod. Herod was called, he had a couple, he had a couple names, a couple titles. One was the Great, and that was to play upon the Hellenistic Jews' admiration of Alexander the Great. The second one was King of the Jews. When Pilate puts the notice above Christ's head, King of the Jews, it was kind of a little bit of his protest, not only to the Jewish leaders who he felt, I don't know, pressured him into it. He owns it, by the way but also as kind of a slight towards Herod the Great as well, who called himself King of the Jews. So what you have at the cross, not only the Jewish people, when you read the scriptures, you have two types of people. You have the Jews and everybody else, the Gentiles. You have the representation of the Gentile nations in Pilate as well. So at the cross, you have all of humanity. We'll ask the question in Easter, who killed Jesus? People will say the Jews killed Jesus. No, they didn't. Actually, nobody killed Jesus. He gave his life. And at the cross, what you have is the representation of all of humanity giving their approval to the crucifixion. It's a wicked inverse of God's commission to Israel to be a light to the nations. They and the nations try to snuff out the light, but the darkness cannot overcome the light. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Let's talk about the greatest gift of Christmas. The greatest gift we can receive is in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Eternal life is not the greatest gift. It is just the cherry on top of the Sunday. All of the blessings in Christ, healing, the voice of God, all the things we talked about being thankful for, they are not the greatest gift. They are part of the greatest gift. The greatest gift is that I get Jesus and Jesus is enough. It's Emmanuel, God with us. And the saying may be trite, but it is absolutely true. The greatest gift was not given under a tree. It was put on a tree. In verse 12 includes something that goes very much against what we will hear in pop culture all the time. Maybe you hear this quite often. We're all children of God. Oh, we're all children of God. It's not true. Thank you, Lindsay. Absolutely, it's not true. What do we have here? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You know, that's an interesting thing. So in John chapter 8, I'm doing this just from memory, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here. There's this point where Jesus is talking with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they're telling him, don't talk to us. We have Abraham. We have God for our father. And Becca was listening to this on the Bible app, by the way, the YouVersion Bible app, awesome, has all these audio Bible functions. And um, I'm like, I'm almost kind of like, I'm like on the edge of my seat because I love this exchange. Jesus says, if God was your father, you'd believe me, but you don't believe me. No, you believe your father. And I'm like, ooh, it's going to get real. And you do his work. He's a liar and a murderer from the beginning. He tells him your father is the devil. You understand, before Christ, we weren't children of God. God owed us nothing. If anything, we were children of darkness, children of the devil. How amazing it is then that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Beatitudes, right? To bless those who curse you, to love our enemy. Christ is our great example of this, who, when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In, the, in verse 13, who were born not of, not of blood, nor of will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Christ also makes his own family. In verse 14, the word became flesh. The word became, the, um, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Christmas is about grace and truth. The ending of verse 14 is the true meaning of Christmas, grace and truth. People will take Christ's words out of context and twist them all the time. For instance, how about love your neighbor as yourself? I've been seeing this lately, totally twisted to say, agree with me or or you're, you're going against Christ. Agree with my political opinion or you're going against Jesus. It's adding law, which is a really terrible thing to do. I mean, you have churches that will not let people take communion unless they do something. I'm not going to get so much into this, but that's a wicked thing to do because that's not in God's law. 
And we should add on to God's law, our own thoughts and ideas. Christmas is about grace and truth, understanding the word in its own context as God has spoken through the prophets, through the apostles, and through the writers of the scriptures. You do not love your neighbor by lying to them. Can I say that again? You do not love your neighbor by lying to them. Now, there is a point in your own heart that if you are telling the truth with an impure heart out of a haughty attitude that's on you, but you do not love your neighbor, though, by lying to them. Many people will take, will take Christ's words out of context that when you tell the truth and it hurts somebody's feelings that you're not being loving. No, it's not loving to lie to somebody. It's not loving that when somebody is deciding to commit adultery to be like, oh, that's fine. Keep going the way you're going because it makes you happy. Can I get real for a second too? Is that it's not loving to just wink and nod at things like the Enneagram, astrology. I mean, I, I could go on and on, mediums and spirituals. It's not loving. We also have to do though with grace in a way that does not put ourselves above them to realize that by God's gra- but without God's grace, we would be there too. We are all in constant need of God's grace, not just at the start, but at all times. Worship team, you can come up at this point. What do you need today? Do you need, do you need the word of God? Of course you need the word of God. But you need to get into God's word to pray to the true word of God, the Logos, to reveal his word in your life, to reveal any unclean thing in me. Do you need the light because you're in despair? Even as believers, we get in despair. There are some people who are like, Christians should be the happiest people. Really? I mean, Paul said we despair to the point of death. Now, he did also say that our light and momentary troubles are producing for us a crown of glory that far as outweighs them all. We have a joy that's unspeakable, full of glory. But there's times in our life where we do get down, where we need to remember to open up our eyes to realize that he is the light and that the source of life is in him as well. So many times we're like, there's not enough hours in the day. You know what I'm talking about? It's Christmas season. Of course you do. There's just not enough hours in the day. And we can go through a time of prolonged melancholy. What we really need to do is we need to go to the source of life because we are all given as many hours as everybody else. What we really need to do is ask God, I need more life in my day. I need the sustainer, the giver of the abundant life to increase my life in, the, in, in this day. For he's the giver of all good gifts. As we approach Christmas season here, as we were in Christmas season, in this Advent season, we are reminded that he is the word, the logos, the logic of God, the light, the life. And that he has called us to his great banqueting table to enjoy all of the gifts, chief of which is life with him. The worship team is going to lead us in our final song, which is the carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. As you guys are playing right here, there's this, uh, there's this book called The Feast of Babette, or Babette's Feast. And um, this is going to be a really fun retelling because I've never read the book. There's a movie based on the book that I've never watched. But there is a book called What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. And I'm going to give you his, uh, his summary of it that I thought was just so powerful about God's grace, especially in the time of Christmas, especially in the time of remembering the word, the life, and the light. In, in the story of Babette's Feast, there is this town in Scandinavia um, that was set up by separatists from the Lutheran faith who really believed that you, you couldn't do anything to please the, the flesh. So that they would, what they would do is they would boil bread as kind of a gruel. Imagine how gross that is. Or they would eat cod, which is completely flavorless. And uh, the founder of this, uh, of this church um, led his family. He had two daughters who were beautiful, but because no man was good enough for them, became older spinsters, rejected every, um, every, um, every suitor that would come to them. And towards after he died, they took over the church. And during this time, they were sent a woman who only spoke French, 
they were a Scandinavian, so they couldn't understand her. And just a note from one of the suitors of one of the women who said, her name is Babette. She can cook really well. She's in danger in France because it was the French Revolution. So they, they set her to work, you know, making the boiled bread, which she, she, she was really grossed out by, but she had a good attitude, made the boiled bread, made the boiled cod. And after several years, the letter comes telling everybody that she won the French lottery and that she had 10,000 francs so she can finally go home. She, she implores with the women. She's like, before I go, I've never asked anything. Can I make you a proper meal? The ladies, they agree to it, but they tell the whole congregation, don't say a word of thanks to her. Don't show that you are appreciating the food. Don't make any yummy sounds. For, for a solid week, she has all this stuff imported in, tortoises, um, all kinds of different delicacies, all from all over Europe, imported in. Finally, it's time for the feast. There's 14 people there, including the suitor from the one gal. They're eating course after course, best food anybody's ever had. And the one suitor who is a general in the local army, he says, I cannot believe how good this is. This is like this French cafe, which is known to be the best in the world. It's actually better than this. He stands up and he, he quotes from the book of Psalms that mercy and grace have kissed. Amazing thing starts happening during the feast. These people, this church is basically dead. This is a reunion, a hundred year reunion of the, of the man who had started it. And they all had different issues with each other. We know this happens in church all the time, right? Gossip, backbiting. You have people who ask for pardon from each other, forgiveness, without having to be prompted. As they're enjoying this food, they can't help but to show, to express the joy that's in their heart. And they then gather around the fountain like they used to, that they hadn't done for 20 years, and singing the songs of the hymns that they had learned long ago. And afterwards, they go into the kitchen. Babette is cleaning things up. And they, they ask her, I mean, they, they tell her, we're so sorry. We've, we didn't know what this is about. We, thank you so much for the food. This was so amazing. And Babette kind of looks rejected, dejected. And they're like, aren't you excited? You're going to be going back home. She's like, no, I'm not going back home. They're like, what about the 10,000 francs? She tells them that I, I spent it all on the meal. I am the head chef of the French restaurant that the general was speaking about. Don't feel bad. This is how much a, city, a sitting for 14 people in that restaurant would cost. And Philip Yancey observes that Babette's feast opened up the door where Grace, where Grace walked through. During this Christmas season, may the door of our hearts open that Grace may come in and that the word and light and life may shine. Would you please join us in singing?